Hello everyone. Welcome back to The Layman's Historian, episode 29, The Barkid Revolution. Last time, we saw how the Carthaginians finally managed to crush their rebellious former mercenaries in the truceless war. For three chaotic years, these professional warriors, in conjunction with the revolting Libyan tribesmen, had terrorized the countryside and even threatened the city of Carthage herself. Ancient allies such as Utica and Hippo Acra turned their backs on the mother city after centuries of faithful allegiance. And behind all these catastrophes loomed the threatening shadow of Rome. In the truceless war, Carthage came the closest she ever had in her history to not just defeat, but the ultimate destruction of her city, her people, and her way of life. That she did not suffer such a fate was due primarily to the stalwartness of her own citizens and the heroic efforts of her greatest general from the First Punic War, Hamilcar Barca. When the dust finally settled in 237 BC, Carthage was a mere shell of her former glory. She had survived, but only just. Impoverished by the previous 24-year struggle with Rome, and the huge war indemnity she still owed, Carthage once again faced bankruptcy at the end of the Truceless War. Her rich farmland and orchards lay wasted from the mercenary marauders, and the countryside stood empty, depopulated by the constant drain of the fighting and raiding, rendering her coffers empty of taxes and tribute. Sardinia remained unsecured, the local Carthaginian population having been slaughtered or driven out by the revolting mercenary bands, while the colonies in Spain had also drifted outside the Carthaginian sphere of influence. Without the flow of raw materials from overseas colonies or from local farms, trade stagnated, and with it, the economy. Carthaginian coinage at this time was debased heavily with bronze alloys, a major indicator of the bleak financial outlook of the times. The abolition of the navy left many sailors and dock workers out of work, and Carthaginian craftsmen and traders found themselves unable to compete with the cheap foreign goods which had been flooding the African markets since the close of the First Punic War. With their livelihoods threatened, the common citizens of Carthage grew restless and resentful of their oligarchical leaders. One of the rare instances of popular discontent in a city nearly 600 years old. As we can see from recent episodes, the chief portion of the blame for all these hardships rested squarely on the shoulders of the aristocratic peace party embodied in the person of Hanno the Great. Time and again, this group of mercantile noblemen had misjudged the situation at hand, first by failing to support Hamilcar Barca in Sicily during the First Punic War, then by dismantling the Carthaginian navy, which led to the disastrous defeat at the Aegides Islands, and finally, by bungling the pay dispute negotiations with the mercenaries and fanning their resentment into a full-scale rebellion. Hanno's own murky military record had contributed greatly to these debacles, but thanks to his great wealth and influence, he had managed to stay on par with Hamilcar Barca, and for the most part, maintain his independent command. Now, in a shameless move of raw political spite, Hanno and his aristocratic friends 
anxious to conserve their own power, scrambled to shift the blame for the mercenary rebellion to Hamilcar, the man who had almost single-handedly saved Carthage from disaster. Their accusation, that Hamilcar's lavish promises of reward to his troops in Sicily had been responsible for the revolt, surprisingly gained ground among the governing class, another indication of just how ungrateful the Carthaginian government could be to her generals in the aftermath of her wars. Hamilcar was even threatened with prosecution before the dreaded Council of 104, that formidable tribunal which had claimed the lives of so many former Carthaginian generals over the centuries. The image of his colleagues from the First Punic War, hanging upon the cross of judgment, loomed very real before the greatest of Carthage's commanders to date. And should Hanno and his party prevail, the Barca general would share that grim fate. Fortunately for Hamilcar, he had wisely garnered his own share of support among several powerful families within Carthage. Among these, his chief ally emerged in the form of his son-in-law, Hasdrubal, known to history as Hasdrubal the Fair, for his extraordinary handsomeness. Although we know little of Hasdrubal's background, he obviously came from an influential family in Carthage, given that he was able to stave off the attacks of Hanno's faction on Hamilcar's behalf. Hamilcar's position was further bolstered by a popular front of common citizens who admired the Barkid general for his victories and his personal service to his country. Blessed with the condescending title of the Cernum, meaning little ones, these ordinary citizens were barred, if not in theory, then in practice, from the higher echelons of government. As we remember from episode 13, the nobility dominated the suffature, the senate-slash-council of elders, and the tribunal of a hundred and four. What little political voice the Carthaginian state bestowed on the common folk expressed itself in the popular assembly, a body which could usually only discuss matters, if invited to, by the council of elders and the suffetes. The citizenry wielded their own kind of influence in day-to-day -day affairs, especially the influential tradesmen and merchant classes. Organized into powerful guilds, these craftsmen funded major construction projects in the city, no small role in a city as cosmopolitan as Carthage, and they could easily make their opinion known to the nobility by popular demonstrations in the marketplace. Historically, though, examples of popular discontent have been few and far between, but now, Despite the conservativeness of Punic society, these common citizens began to interject their voice more and more into political affairs, further solidifying the Barkid position. Finding himself in conjunction with Hasdrubal, the acclaimed head of this new democratic party, Hamilcar quickly turned the tables on Hanno's political ploy. We do not know precisely how he overcame the charges from the Tribunal of 104, whether by a law passed by his son-in-law Hasdrubal, or by spearheading an expansion of the authority of the popular assembly to review and circumscribe the tribunal's decisions. Regardless of the means, the result was that the Barkid party managed to break the power of the tribunal once and for all. From this point forward, there is no record of any generals being condemned by this dreaded court, 
which now disappears from the historical record. Not content with merely weathering these charges, Hamilcar swiftly maneuvered to take advantage of Hanno's miscalculation by sponsoring a host of constitutional reforms, all bent on increasing the power of the people of Carthage at the expense of the old oligarchical regime. Ever since the end of the First Punic War, Hamilcar had burned with indignation against the wealthy landowners who dominated Carthaginian politics. He felt that the Council of Elders surrendered Sicily too hastily out of desperation, and that Carthaginian honor had been tarnished by this hurried capitulation and acquiescence to Rome's demands. He also resented his virtual abandonment in Sicily, while Hanno had enjoyed ample support in his campaigns against the Libyans and Numidians of the interior. In Hamilcar's opinion, he had been forced to give up the fight only because the defeat of the Carthaginian navy left him no choice. The loss of ancient territory vexed Hamilcar's proud spirit, says Livy, and Polybius concurs, reporting that his spirit remained unbowed after the war. He remained impassioned and watched out for a chance to attack. If the Carthaginians had not had to deal with the rebellion of their mercenaries, Hamilcar's best efforts would have been directed towards restarting the war with Rome and ensuring that it would happen. If Carthage was to avenge herself upon Rome, Hamilcar had to drag her out of her current political and economic quagmire. The reformation of the government and removal of the influence of the stale aristocratic cliques came first in this plan of revitalization. In a series of rapid reforms, the authority of the People's Assembly was expanded to include the election of generals, as well as the Safites, while the Safites themselves became solely civil leaders, with their military responsibilities being relinquished to the governors and generals of the provinces. With the Suffature satisfactorily taken care of, Hamilcar then weakened the Carthaginian Council of Elders by removing power from permanent senatorial committees investing it instead with magistrates who served one-year terms, further democratizing the government. Thus, a mere hundred years after Aristotle had praised the intricate balance of monarchic, oligarchic, and democratic elements in the Carthaginian constitution, the Barkid Revolution forged a new republic on much more democratic lines. Their reforms were so sweeping that Polybius, no friend to democracy, would report disparagingly that by the end of the Second Punic War, the average citizen in Carthage had far more political rights than his counterpart in Rome. Such a state of affairs would have been unimaginable a mere hundred years before. These resounding political victories served as death blows to the unchallenged dominance of Hanno's party in Carthage. Backed by his new democratic power base, Hamilcar and his Barkid faction reigned supreme in Carthaginian politics, relegating Hanno the Great to lead a bitter opposition party, which, though out of favor, still retained significant influence among the Old Guard families and the Council of Elders. Meanwhile, Hamilcar's popularity among the people soared due to his past victories and his current firm leadership in the efforts at revitalization. Greek historians Polybius and Cassius Dio both accuse Hamilcar of catering to the masses as a demagogue 
similar to the likes of the Syracusan tyrants of old. But Hamilcar had grander schemes in mind than the mere dominance of his home city. Turning from internal reforms, Hamilcar encountered the Sardinian problem. As we remember from last time, a mercenary rebellion in Sardinia, inspired if not directly instigated by its counterpart in North Africa, had cut off the island from Carthage since 240 BC. After massacring the Carthaginian inhabitants, the mercenaries fell upon the local Nuragic tribes inhabiting the mountainous interior of Sardinia. Here, however, the rebels overreached themselves, for the warlike natives rose up and pressed the mercenaries so vigorously that they were forced to hightail it off the island for the safety of Roman shores. With order now restored in Africa, Hamilcar prepared an army for the reconquest of Sardinia in 238 BC. Despite Hamilcar's bitterness towards Rome, the Romans themselves had rendered great service to Carthage during her mercenary crisis, even resisting the tempting offer from the expelled mercenaries to annex Sardinia for themselves, at least initially. Now, however, in an abrupt change of face, Rome suddenly demanded that Carthage relinquish all claim to Sardinia or prepare for war. Having aided Carthage for three years against the mercenaries, why Rome now became hyper-aggressive remains a mystery. But the simplest answer seems the most probable. Carthage was weak, Rome was strong, and in the words of Thucydides, the strong do what they can, and the weak suffer what they must. In what would later be dubbed the Rape of Sardinia, Carthage was forced to back down. Handicapped by the huge indemnity and an economy only just beginning to revive, she could mount no effective resistance to a rival which she had not been able to defeat in her heyday. To Hamilcar's burning shame, Sardinia, an island which had belonged to Carthage for over 300 years, was allowed to slip from her grasp. A year later, Rome showed her true colors by annexing both Sardinia and Corsica into her own burgeoning empire. This brazen act of opportunism excited outrage even from Rome's greatest admirers, like Polybius. Polybius writes that there was no reasonable pretext or justification for Rome's actions, and that this was contrary to all justice. As if the mere seizure of territory was not bad enough, the Roman people demanded a further indemnity from Carthage of 1,200 talents, nearly half the amount still owing on the original indemnity. In the political equivalent of a street mugging, Rome delivered a pitiless reminder that in her mind at least, Carthage's days as a world power were over. Any hopes of a lasting peace based on the cooperation during the Truceless War shattered at this point. Now, not just Hamilcar Barca, but many other Carthaginian citizens resented Rome's rough treatment and disparagement of their national honor, and this sentiment further fueled Hamilcar's designs for future vengeance. With instinctive foresight, Hamilcar sensed that Carthage's struggle with Rome had not ceased with the peace of the First Punic War. Rather, he saw the two powers now locked in a life-or-death clash 
from which only one would emerge victorious. Rome's subsequent actions with Sardinia and Corsica merely confirmed this belief and made it all the more pressing in his mind that Carthage be placed on a war footing once more. However, even with public opinion in line with his own, Hamilcar knew that blind fury would be insufficient to counteract Rome's military machine and the human waves she could bring to bear on a foe. Money, men, and materials would be needed in excess, and all three were conspicuously lacking in North Africa in the wake of the truceless war. Thus, like his Phoenician ancestors, Hamilcar would have to turn overseas for the resources necessary to reinvigorate his homeland. With the loss of Sicily, and now Sardinia and Corsica, the central and eastern Mediterranean were closed to Carthage, so there was only one direction left to go, west. Given the monumental task before him, it is not surprising that Hamilcar turned towards Spain. As we remember from episode 14, Spain, or Iberia to use its ancient name, commanded seemingly inexhaustible sources of men and mineral wealth both of which have been tapped into for nearly eight centuries, first by the Phoenicians and later the Carthaginians. If the rivers did not run with molten silver, as Diodorus claimed, there certainly was no lack of gold, silver, iron, and copper flowing out of the mountain mines from the interior. If ever Carthage was to rise again to economic prominence, she would need access to such outside sources of wealth to overcome her heavy war debts to Rome. Besides the wealth to be had, Spain offered vast numbers of men who could be used as sturdy recruits for the Carthaginian armies. Iberian and Celtiberian soldiers had served extensively and conspicuously in Carthaginian armies for centuries, and Hamilcar knew firsthand just how well the tribal feuds and constant raiding of their homeland bred first-rate warriors. Spanish horses and horsemen were prized for their skill and intelligence, while the infantry, with their guerrilla-style warfare and fierce swordsmen, could prove indispensable if handled correctly. Beyond Spain lay the vast rivers and forests of Gaul, teeming with hordes of warlike Celtic tribes who would be all too willing to fight Carthage's battles for her. Spain must be brought into the Carthaginian Empire if she was to survive a second struggle with Rome. Hamilcar opened his campaign with a dramatic gesture that would ring for generations to come. While performing the sacrifices in the Temple of Baal to supplicate the gods' favor, Hamilcar beckoned his nine-year-old son, Hannibal, over to where the sacrificial animal lay. His father asked if the boy wished to accompany him on his expedition to Spain. And when his son eagerly said yes, Hamilcar had him place his hand upon the sacrifice and swear never to be a friend to the Roman people. Thus, Hannibal Barca, a name which would bring terror to generations of Roman soldiers, strode upon the pages of history. This celebrated episode, the first glimpse we get of the most famous of Carthaginians, comes down to us from multiple sources including a purported oral account from Hannibal himself to the Seleucid king Antiochus III, as reported by Polybius. 
The oath in the Temple of Baal has fired the imaginations of artists, poets, and writers ever since. And even so serious a historian as Theodore Dodge was moved to romanticize the scene by making the boy Hannibal vow, I swear, as soon as age will permit, I will use fire and steel to arrest the destiny of Rome. Words which, however imposing, no ancient source reports him as saying. Nonetheless, the sentiment rings true, if nothing else. And this inaugural episode of Hannibal's career would give rise to his image as a man born and bred to single-handedly break the rising Roman Republic. Sources differ as to Hamilcar's departure from Carthage, with some saying that he left in defiance of the Carthaginian elders, while others saying that he had their blessing for his enterprise. His position in Carthage was so secure that it really was irrelevant what the government thought. Even if they disagreed with him, they were powerless to stop him. After sharpening his soldiers' skills with a few skirmishes in Numidian territory, Hamilcar led them westward along the North African coast. In a depressing sign of Carthage's naval impotence, the handful of supply ships led by Hasdrubal the Handsome were all that remained of Carthage's once vaunted navy, leaving Hamilcar with no means of conveying his force to Spain by sea. Thus, the land route would have to suffice. After enduring the long stretches of wilderness along the North African coast, Hamilcar reached the Pillars of Hercules, today known as the Straits of Gibraltar, accomplishing a march which was no small feat in and of itself. Faring his men over in batches at a time, Hamilcar finally landed in the ancient Phoenician city of Gades. In the words of a favorite history documentary from my childhood, Hamilcar descended upon Spain like a force of nature. The tribe nearest Gades, the Turditani, had adopted the Punic language and Punic ways, enjoying status as a protectorate and remitting trade and tribute from their silver mines to the Carthaginians. Such an arrangement was no longer satisfactory. If Hamilcar was to acquire the funds needed to stave off future Roman aggression, he would have to control and harvest the Spanish silver mines directly importing new mining breakthroughs from the Hellenistic world to increase the efficiency of the yields. Obviously, this plan did not sit well with the local Turditani, who banded together under a coalition of tribes, including possibly some Celtiberian warbands, led by a chieftain named Istiladius. As we remember from episode 14, the Iberian tribes tended to emphasize their own petty sovereignties, and raided, pillaged, and fought among each other on a regular basis. Given this history of fierce independence, the fact that the tribesmen united to resist Hamilcar's advance shows how greatly they feared him as a threat. Unfortunately, the details of the battle which followed have not come down to us. All we know is that despite their overwhelming numerical superiority, the Iberians suffered a severe defeat in which Hamilcar managed to kill both Istiladius and his brother, as well as several other prominent chieftains. Reviving his old strategies from the truceless war, Hamilcar offered his Iberian prisoners the opportunity to join his army, and 3,000 warriors took him up on his offer and swelled his army's ranks. 
With the lands of the ancient Tartessian kingdom secured, located roughly in southwestern Spain and Portugal, Hamilcar took over a number of the local mines and instituted the more efficient Hellenistic methods to maximize mining yields. Slave gangs controlled by overseers provided the brute labor of redirecting rivers through the tunnels and shafts or operating the pumps to clear out further veins. The workers would crush the rocks containing the silver ore and lead and running water before sending them through a sieve. This process was repeated two more times before the ore was melted in a kiln to separate the pure silver from the lead and slag. Utilizing these new methods, Hamilcar was able to harvest an almost unbelievable amount of wealth. No hard figures exist for the Barkid period in Spain, but from the 2nd century BC to the 5th century AD, the Romans employed 40,000 slaves who extracted 25,000 drachmas a day from Spanish mines. Considering that the daily wage of a skilled laborer or Greek hoplite was roughly a drachma a day, it would not be too far-fetched to imagine that Hamilcar could almost pay for an entire army by solely relying on the output from these mines. Hamilcar remitted large sums of silver back to Carthage, and with such fabulous wealth flowing in, she paid off both Roman war indemnities in record time, upsetting Rome's calculated effort to financially cripple her rival. With the minds of his new territory reorganized, Hamilcar marched east, battling numerous hostile tribes at every turn. Even tribes which had been historically friendly towards the Carthaginians resisted fiercely, forcing Hamilcar to fight for every step. The forested valleys and steep mountains of Spain favored the Iberian tactics of guerrilla warfare, and even when they fought pitched battles, the terrain still posed a significant obstacle to an invading force. Nonetheless, slowly but surely, Hamilcar expanded Carthaginian influence further and further east, and under his leadership, the eclectic mix of Libyans, Libby Phoenicians, Numidians, Celts, and Iberians were welded into a cohesive and deadly fighting force. Military means were not the only methods Hamilcar applied to bring the Iberians to heel. In one battle, he captured a large number of Iberians, including a great chieftain named Endortes. Hamilcar ordered Endortes tortured by having his eyes gouged out before crucifying him while simultaneously releasing 10,000 Spanish tribesmen. This mixture of clemency and brutality sent a stark message throughout all the peninsula. Submit and be rewarded. Resist and prepare for the worst. From 237 to 228 BC, over nine years of hard campaigning, Hamilcar and his army subdued the southern Iberians and won a firm foothold in Spain, extending Carthaginian territory across southern Spain from Gades to modern Cap de la Noe on the eastern coast. Along the way, he founded new cities to secure Carthage's hold on its new territory, including the city of Acreluca, supposed to be near the modern town of Alicante. By this point, Hamilcar held the title of military governor of both North Africa and the valuable new conquests in Spain. However, 
If Hamilcar was to harness and command the resources of Iberia on the scale he imagined, he would have to exert more power than his predecessors of old. Carthage was on the brink of a long descent into imperial dotage and subservience to Rome, and the policies and meddling of the weak-willed landowners led by Hanno would hasten her fall. Hamilcar could not save his beleaguered Carthage if he remained beholden to such men or left himself open to interference from Rome. He must have the autonomy of independent action, or all would be lost. Such thoughts would have seemed foreign but a hundred years ago, before the coming of Alexander the Great. However, as we discussed in episode 9, the achievements of this boy king had caused a radical shift in thought away from the old traditional power bases, legitimizing the reigns of several mercenary adventurers. It had had other, more practical consequences as well. To quote the French historian Gilbert Charles Picard, The unleashing of unscrupulous personal ambition, the violent contrast between the boundless exaltation of a few individuals and the subjection of the multitude, were very characteristic of the whole Hellenistic period, and particularly of that period of unutterable confusion which for a whole generation followed the death of Alexander. The breakup of the old social framework, in the cities first of all, and then in the newly created Macedonian Empire, led to the collapse of all moral values and the triumph of force and opportunism. It let loose upon the world wild beasts in human form, whose ambition had been overestimated by the conqueror's example, but who had none of his nobility of soul. Never perhaps in the whole history of the world did adventurers, conquering tyrants, and those who make war for the sheer pleasure of it have such a wonderful opportunity. And never were the peace lovers, rich or poor, so constantly threatened. In such an era which produced men like Agathocles and all the squabbling Diadochi, a man could rise to dazzling heights based on sheer determination, charisma, and luck. Soldiers followed their leader from a sense of faith in his personal good fortune. This could be attached to his family as well, indicating a sense of right to rule, even if the founding general had no claim by birth or right. Thus Alexander's generals, Seleucus, Antigonus, and Ptolemy, established military monarchies based on nothing more than their ties to the great Macedonian and their own personal charisma, rising from generals to kings within thirty years of Alexander's death. Hamilcar must have been aware of this given the heavy Hellenistic influence among the Carthaginian elite, and the subsequent history of his family demonstrates their willingness to embrace Greek thought and learning. These Greek ideas would now be modified to Hamilcar's own ends, allowing him to set up a de facto Hellenistic monarchy while maintaining a veneer of subservience towards the government back home. In order to secure his independence of action, Hamilcar needed to diminish or eliminate official oversight from Carthage. Historically, the Carthaginian government had used the treasury and the Council of 104 to maintain control over its armies overseas. By regulating the flow of payments to the troops and holding the ever-present threat of post-war prosecution over her generals, the Carthaginian oligarchy trusted they could keep in check the military power of their commanders. 
Hamilcar would give them no such opportunity to scrutinize his agenda in Spain. Having already bested the Council of 104 once, Hamilcar never returned to Carthage to place himself in its power again, remaining content to exert his influence indirectly, using his personal connections, and by buying support among the popular assembly. In addition to supplying him with the funds to maintain his influence back home, the Spanish silver mines also gave him plenty of money to recruit and pay his own army, and Hamilcar even set up his own minting operations to personally supervise the striking of coins for his soldiers. Both of these factors contributed to the curious situation which now unfolded as Hamilcar's armies pushed further into Spain. Ostensibly still serving under the Carthaginian banner, Hamilcar gradually assumed more and more autonomy from the capital, exercising all the power without the actual title of a royal monarch. He minted coins bearing his own likeness and founded cities in his new territories, both defining actions of the Hellenistic kings in the east. He also emphasized the old Phoenician god of the royal Tyrians, Melkart, as the patron god of his house, and struck countless coins with the god's image of a clean-shaven man with a headband. Although theoretically a member of the Carthaginian pantheon, Melkart had long been supplanted by other Carthaginian gods, such as Baal Hamon and Tanit, and Diodorus reports that Melkart's temples were seldom visited in Carthage. However, for the Barkids, Melkart served an invaluable role since he had long been associated with the demigod Hercules, and as such had remained popular not only within Phoenician colonies such as Gades, but also on Sicily, especially among Carthaginian soldiers. This clever emphasis of Melkart forged a link back to the ancient reigns of the kings of Tyre, as well as Carthaginian Sicily where Hamilcar had been the last Carthaginian commander. It also served to link Hamilcar to the military achievements of Alexander the Great through Melkart's association with Hercules, a classic prerequisite for anyone seeking to legitimize his rule in the Hellenistic period. By linking himself with the royal Phoenician god Melkart and wielding his own army and treasury virtually independent of the Carthaginian state, Hamilcar ruled as a king in all but name. His enemies, such as Hanno the Great, never wearied in pointing this out, but Hamilcar wisely maintained a careful guise of obedience towards the government back home, always claiming to act in its name and by its authority. Whether he hesitated to upset the traditionally-minded public in Carthage, or whether he honestly felt obligated to his home government, is uncertain but Hamilcar always maintained the facade that he was a mere agent of the Carthaginian state. The reality stood in stark contrast to this legal fiction. The Carthaginian elders remained powerless to counteract or counterman their greatest general, and they feared any action which might cause an open rupture. In a sign of how matters really stood, the Carthaginian government was forced to send messengers to Hamilcar requesting aid against a Numidian rebellion in North Africa. Hamilcar dispatched his lieutenant Hasdrubal to deal with the crisis, preferring to remain in Spain and continue his great work of forging a de facto kingdom under his own personal command. 
With the might of Spain behind him and his sons at his side, Hamilcar could begin to devise his grand plan of vengeance on the hated Romans. Next time, we will see how the Barkids prepared to renew their great struggle with Rome and how Hannibal Barca would take the first steps which would lead him beyond the Alps to the very gates of Rome. Until then, take care and read more history. <music>